Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm Rob Lawrence and as always joining me is uh, my amazing co-host of this what is now Hillary, an acclaimed EMS podcast. Welcome Hillary Gates. We are now highly rated, Rob Lawrence. EMS One has said that of the podcast released last year, or this year rather, we are in the top 12. So thank you EMS One. Thank you listeners. Keep on listening and keep talking to us. And uh, before we even get going, if if you are listening already, don't forget to find us on the platform you're listening to and give us five stars. So the topic this time around is mobile integrated healthcare, community paramedicine. And to help us with this conversation, I'd like to bring in uh, Adam Hines, who's the executive director of integrated healthcare for Remsa Health, and also Anne Jensen, the special projects manager from San Diego Fire Department. Guys, welcome. Hi. Hi, thank you for having us. I'm excited to have both of you in the room because when this community paramedicine lock got going in the US, and I have to tell you that you can't Hollywoodify this for me because I was doing this in the UK 15 years ago, just saying, I'll leave it there. Okay, but when it came across the pond, when you started to do this, you guys were at the epicenter right at the beginning. So let's start with the first question first. MIH and or CP, what does it mean? And sure, I'll answer this one. I, I have opinions. They might not be, um, not everyone might like them, but I'm just going to tell you what they are. Um, so I believe that mobile integrated health is about integrating healthcare. I believe that community paramedicine is about integrating systems of care. So I feel like the individual practitioner, the community paramedic gets into you know, a lot of different systems of care, just kind of true to our original mission in EMS, where, um, you know, the EMS agenda for the future talks about how we are the intersection of public health care and public safety. And our medical director locally, uh, former medical director, Dr. Dunford used to like to say, we are brackish fish and we swim in brackish water. And um, I think the community paramedic is the, the brackish fish that goes into even more strange waters. And so I feel like the community paramedic role is very, very diverse, maybe a little more diverse than the mission of mobile integrated healthcare. And already coming out with the analogy for my English teacher brain, like I would even say that what's that fish that can crawl on land? Because the community paramedics are so amazing that they don't just stay in the water. They also get up onto the shore. Okay. Answers on a postcard to that one to our usual mailbag address. Uh, Adam, I think Anne's got us off to a roaring start because I hadn't considered the subtle differences between mobile integrated healthcare and community paramedicine. I mean, what version of that are you guys yeah, doing? Yeah, you know, I, I similarly have a lot of the same thoughts as Anne. And I think, you know, for us, one of the things that I think is important is the thought that the model in which we currently have, which is 30 plus years old here in the United States, is antiquated. The idea that you call, we haul. Uh, needs to change. And so I see, you know, we developed my position as a, an attempt for us to modernize the care in which we provide in our community. And, and I like to believe that mobile integrated health is where we're going. Uh, we will always have the need for there to be emergency paramedics respond to people that are experiencing the worst day of their life and near death. 
But uh, we also will see, and the majority of what we're seeing, at least uh, here in the United States, is individuals that lack many different things in which are a lot of those social determinants, which community paramedics and community paramedicine work to address. And so I think that those are the subtle nuances is that community, for me specifically, is mobile integrated health is where many places are right now and that we need to strive to continue to go. Thank you for that answer. Let's go right back to the beginning of both of your programs. Um, what was the impetus or the, the thing that made your systems think this was a great idea and get into it? So what, what are your origin stories, uh, Adam? You know, for us, it was the opportunity to participate in an innovation grant. I mean, we know that if I had at my house a personal trainer, a world-renowned chef, and a cardiologist, I probably would be really fit and I would live a long time. And the same thing happens with community paramedic programs, right? The idea that you have somebody that's specialized and focused and trained to be able to manage some of these disease processes, we know makes a difference. And so for us, it was the capital that was provided by the innovation grant that was circa 12 years ago or 10 years ago that allowed for us the ability for us to springboard. And since then, uh, has uh, obviously been true to the ability to enhance the lives of individuals in our community, uh, but continues to evolve and change shape as funding sources change, as the needs of the community changes, and obviously as uh, science and, and the profession evolves. And, and Adam, I'm going to come to you now because, of course, what, what we have here is two different types of system. We have a high-performance system that is in REBSA, and, of course, you guys are in a fire-based EMS system. So what, what was the, the, the nucleus of the idea for community paramedicine MIH in, in San uh, Yeah, Diego? well, in the, I say, I'd say the late 90s, early 2000s, we, prior to me coming in, our system was involved in a serial inebriate program, which was a partnership with, you know, the court systems, law enforcement, and the same concepts that were being effective with the serial inebriates. We looked at it and said, this probably would work for our frequent utilizers. It was one of those cases where we looked at the utilization and less than 1% of the population in San Diego was generating almost 20% of calls of the EMS call volume. And so in 2008, we had a pilot program to test the concept, published a study on that. And in 2010, we implemented that formally, which um, it was when they brought me in. And so we do consider ourselves an urban community paramedicine program. And at the time when we started it, that was a little bit prior to the term community paramedicine, you know, being thrown, thrown out there. So we didn't really know what to call ourselves. But I do remember in the early days when it was, you know, Fort Worth, REMSA, us, and some other systems, Everything was very heavily focused on healthcare only, whereas we were urban and we felt a little bit, not alone, but we felt like the urban aspect of community paramedicine was not really a, like an accepted thought. So here we are in the eighth largest city in the United States running a community paramedic program that is very much set up to address urban needs. And that means that our goals are what the city's goals are and what the public's goals are. Rather than reducing healthcare costs, it is what is what are the citizens and what is the mayor worried about? Actually, that answer for me is also one of the reasons why I don't think Webster's can actually put the definition of what a community paramedic is yet, because it's everything to everyone in their locality. You know, you, you, you're filling a need. But going back to you, uh, Adam, the demonstration project, obviously, you had to produce results, you had to produce savings, you had to identify how this is going to benefit anybody and everybody. 
what were those things you had to produce by way of showing this was a great idea? And how is that now carried forward to what you're doing today? Well, obviously, we were we were shooting for the triple aim, which is uh, reducing cost, improving the health of the community, as well as patients' uh, opinion of the care in which they were providing, uh, which obviously made things much more efficient. And so initially, you know, we had the opportunity to work with some great partners. University of Nevada was a great partner of ours, some of the health systems. And it was easy for us to pick some of those patients in which we saw were repatriating to the hospitals. And so we focused on congestive heart failure as well as patients in which had uh, emphysema, COPD, and, and then later on diabetes. But what we were able to do was be able to show that there was a cost saving to the health system in general. In fact, when we were done with that grant, we actually provided money back to them uh, because we didn't use it all. And we were also obviously able to show a significant ROI. But more importantly was the fact that many of these people were asked different questions, including the quality of life. And we really were able to make a difference in the quality of the health of our individuals in our community while reducing the need for them to repatriate back to the hospital. I love the word repatriate. I'm just going to keep uh, jumping in with all my English teacher things here, Rob. Because it's oh, repatriate. My bad. Yeah. There we go. I, I always say things wrong. Yeah. So Adam, you're talking <laughs> about the readmission penalties that CMS, that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services initially, um, I mean, things have changed since they uh, initiated that program, but I don't think a lot of EMS providers know that when a hospital discharges a patient with certain uh, procedures or conditions and they come back within 30 days, not only is the hospital not paid for the original service, but they are also penalized and have to pay back to CMS a penalty for not following up properly and, and taking care of the patient. So I think one of the things that is super interesting to these community paramedic and MIH programs across the country is that there are a myriad of ways that we can demonstrate our value. And if you can approach a hospital or a CEO and say, hey, I noticed on uh, hospital.gov that you guys got fined a million dollars last year for your re readmissions. I can help you with that. If you give me like 250, I'll take care of uh, the rest and, and you don't have to pay the penalty. And how, how have your programs changed over the years since you started with your serial inebriate? And, and what are some of your successes that you're finding in San Diego? I think we've just become much more robust you know, on our team. So I would say that we are a mobile integrated healthcare team at this point. So we have paramedics, we have mental health clinicians, social workers. We work closely um, with our physicians who meet with us once a week. And we have a close relationship with the city attorneys who become, they say, we're the bully that goes behind you when nobody is taking care of our patients. And, you know, our, our mission really is to find vulnerable people and be their advocate. And our, um, kind of rallying cry within our team is we don't do easy because a lot of services will take the easy clients and they can fill beds and fill positions so easily with easier to manage people. So, so the most vulnerable people can be left behind. And so, you know, that's our job and what we do. We say that we meddle into the systems of care to make them work together. And I think what's changed is our capacity to do that over the years has increased so much. The past decade has really been getting past 
the really the adoption of it where we started we had really good results we had great numbers great reduction numbers and we published you know some and we did analyses on that and really we didn't understand at the time that that wasn't our audience so you know there was a point in time where it was really rough keeping the program going but now what we've seen is our city leadership understanding the value of it and supporting it and um, other city departments coming together to work with us just to go back on, on your question, Hillary, I remember way back, way back when in a previous life of mine where we went to the hospital to say, we can see from the, the Kaiser stats here that your hospital group is getting X times fine for these 28-day readmissions. Um, let us step in and help you, exactly what you described. The response was, ah, yes, but we actually cost that into the overall fee. And so right now, we're not too fussed about it. I'm delighted to say they got more fussed later. But that wasn't a good start, but we actually managed to get on with that. So there's always that piece to worry about, that you know, the economics of it. It was factored in as a, we'll just brush it aside. But of course, what you just described there, Anne, was what we need to be doing across the entire, dare I say, world right now, not only the US, but uh, you know, the tip, the treatment in place, the tilt, the treatment in lieu of transport, keeping people away from the hospitals. I always go back to my English experience where I was required to achieve arrival avoidance, not admission avoidance. So I need to get someone somewhere else other than the hospital. With the sort of pressures that COVID are applying, with the ambulance patient offload times or the wall time or the ramp time or whatever you call it, how are you guys, you know, alleviating your local pressures by having great MIHCP services? What are you doing to help out right now? Well, so we, I mean, our top goal obviously is the the frequent utilizers and our top 10 utilizers in the system make up 1% of our total call volume. So even if our team is small, we can have an impact. And our philosophy is that we start at the top. We have a computer that ranks everybody in real time. We started at the top, we work our way down. And so it might take the whole team to work on two patients at first. And then once those are taken care of, then we can work on 10 patients and then, you know, kind of like a wake effect. And so we find that a small team can have an impact on the system. I do think it needs to be scaled for us to reduce unit hours and take units off the streets to see alleviation to that degree. But right now, what we see is it gives our medics a little bit more downtime. It gives our engines a little more downtime. And Anne, can you also talk about what San Diego Fire Rescue and your program did during the height of the pandemic? Um, I think you said they may be winding this down with the homeless population and the clinic or the offsite. Yes. And I was actually on leave during the, on maternity leave during that time. So I wasn't part of it, but I can tell you a little bit about it. Um, our medics were diverted to, they, they turned the convention center, the San Diego convention center into a homeless shelter. And the thought was to take all of the, you know, population that's experiencing homelessness and put them under one roof so that we can provide services. So our medics and our team, you know, so our, our mental health clinicians and social workers also went and they had a booth there and they staffed. And what they did was help navigate people to the right services instead of, you know, calling 911, sending them to the hospital and having the hospital do that. They did that on site and they also provided crisis intervention and other things like that. Great. Adam, over to you. Interestingly, if there has been any silver lining to the pandemic, uh, how we deploy assets and how we respond and, and either purposefully respond or purposefully not respond to certain calls has really changed. And, you know, I believe our community health program 
is kind of in its version, I don't know, 7.0, 8.0, 9.0. And as a result of many of the things that we're seeing across the nation, the offload delays, increased number of calls for behavioral health, so too is the need for us as leadership to begin to kind of decide what we're going to do moving forward. And so, you know, early on in the pandemic, we were requested to participate in things like potentially virtually monitoring a group of underserved that were going to be placed in in housing that were going to be quarantined. Um, and they looked to, you know, they had home health, obviously, that could have done that. They had other social services, but they really didn't have the infrastructure nor the expertise. And so they looked to us, potentially build that infrastructure. And and so what we're seeing is, uh, again, that adaptability, that nimbleness. You know, another instance is uh, similar to San Diego. One of the areas, uh, as a result of some of the CARES money that came in, there was a campus that was built. And, uh, you know, essentially what it did was consolidate services for those that are homeless uh, in our community. And, and as such, you would expect we're going to see an increase in call volume. Uh, instead of responding to multiple different locations in our community, we're now uh, responding to one area, which obviously drives up call volume. And, and many people then begin to con be concerned about that. But what we did with the community health paramedics is similar to almost a police officer that's being proactive in their beat is send them out to just go and do a kind of a drive through and make contact with individuals so that proactively, if there were things in which they could potentially address or services in which they could potentially marry, uh, they were doing that, which was with the intent of thwarting an ambulance response. And I think uh, moving forward, that's going to be a successful model for us for that particular area. Adam, thank you very much for that. We're just going to take a second to, to go away to our sponsor, which is EMS Gives Life. Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life. At EMS Gives Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver saving the life of a three-year-old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you will go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. And uh, make sure you do follow EMS Gives Life. They are doing a fantastic job out there. You can also follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the other podcast platforms. As I said at the start of the show, if you're enjoying the show, please take a second to rate and review us. Give us five stars on your platform, and then we'll go way up the searchability list. So we're looking forward to that. Now, Hillary, you are an educator extraordinaire, and I bet you've got some educator questions. Well, Over I mean, to you. I have to take advantage of the fact that I have two of the most important community paramedic MIH program directors here on, here, on, here. The, uh, on the call. So I just got to teach at the University of Pittsburgh for the first time, and, and I get to do it again next semester, a community paramedic class in the, in the emergency medicine program. It's been amazing. 
so I got to experience firsthand as an educator what it was like to tell people about community paramedicine that didn't really know about community paramedicine. These are kind of newish paramedics. Um, they haven't had a lot of time on the street, and they, I'm sure, heard of community paramedicine, but um, haven't really gotten to dig into it. So I learned a lot about that, and I've gotten a lot of guidance from folks like Anne and Dan Swayze and many others. So what I want to hear from you guys and what I think the audience really would like to understand is how should community paramedics be trained and how should they be trained differently than a traditional or 911 medic? I think it's also important to consider the same way we consider an EMS education, not only initial certification programs or initial training for new programs, but also the continuing education uh, for existing programs. And since both of you um, have experience doing both. Um, I'd love to hear that. So, Anne, can you talk about your beliefs about how community paramedics should be trained and then continue to be trained? Absolutely. And I think there is, anytime you have a new concept that's evolving, there's a lot of rhetoric around it. And we've definitely had a lot of rhetoric around community paramedicine and especially the, you know, it's so easy. We just repurpose a, you know, a paramedic into this role and suddenly they did this one little thing and it was miraculous for the patient and the patient is all better and has a job now. And I think we hear that a lot and that does happen, but I think it is the exception rather than the rule. But I think what the underlying issue is is that we aren't understanding all the facets that we need to do in our training. So I always look at every program, whether it's our internal program or other community programs or other systems of care, I divide that them into the structure, the culture, and the craft. And the structure really is, well, you know, we're doing alternate destinations to this mental health facility, the tangible things that you can write on paper, your policies and procedures, the things that you do in your operation. But there's also the culture. How do you see your patients? How do you feel about your patients? How do you interact with other people? And then the craft. And that is, like what when the rubber meets the road when your boots meet the ground like how do you change people's lives for them and so I think the education curriculum has to be um, well-rounded enough to address all of those and I think we also have to so like when we look at the structure Adam mentioned like a community policing and I very much see community paramedicine as a parallel to community policing Um, I also see it in the sense of the, um, okay, so going back, because I'm just going to over-explain a little bit. When we have our identity crisis about EMS, right? Are we healthcare? Are we public safety? Like, what are we? And the answer is, I believe, and you can disagree, that we are a healthcare system on a public safety structure. And so when we look at our patrol officers versus our detectives, I think that's the difference. So we look at our, I look at the 911 paramedics versus the community paramedics who are like the detectives who are not the incident centered people. That's, you know, that's the paramedics or that's the, the patrol, but we are the people to see cases through in a longitudinal manner. So we have to do investigation work and all sorts of other things. So in our program, I can tell you the specific things that we teach about in ours is that longitudinal case management where suddenly your time management skill is on a different scale. 911 paramedics think epi every three to five minutes. You know, our time (laughs) management is in seconds and minutes where the community paramedic, it's weeks and months and even years with some patients. We have patients that have been our patients for 10 years. So um, our time scale and our time management is different. We also train on the social determinants of health and assessment in that regard. And that's one of our metrics for letting people go and graduating them is they have to have the their social determinants of their metrics in that regard in a stable place. We also and, and do a quick definition for us about SDOH. 
Oh, well, social determinants of health are, I mean, you know, that's the public health concept. And I would say that it's more than social determinants of health. It's just determinants of health, but all the things that impact your life and your quality of life. And so we have a mnemonic that I developed with uh, Dan Swayze. So both of our, you know, we worked on that a long time and I think it's been adopted in other s- systems, but the it's the community paramedics merits or the CP's merits. And that's a clinical, psychological, social meals, environment, records, income, transportation, and skills. And it covers all the things like the records dimension covers, you know, if they're an arsonist or a sex offender, they're really hard to place. So you have to be aware of the records that help or hinder. So we do a lot of training on that. Have I explained that enough for Yeah, because I could go longer if you wanted to. But um, another really important aspect that we train on is the is information management. So day one and probably the first couple months of the paramedic training, community paramedic training is training on our monitoring system so that they can recognize vulnerability through data and that they learn how to it's information management, it's intelligence management. So they learn to be able to be reactive in not real time, but time enough to be impactful. But you have to have a good sense of what's happening with the data and be able to interpret it. So they're very um, involved in that. And then I also do a lot of training and etiquette because if you are swimming in strange waters, you have to know, you know, those basic rules. And that's really important for, for medics is the is the etiquette. And then also the concepts of networking um, versus formal teams a multidisciplinary team where you have a formal agreement to work together versus the networking. How do you convince people to help your patients when you're operating from a powerless position? And so the community paramedics ability to build a good network for their patients depends, you know, it it makes them more successful if they have a good network of providers who are willing to help. And the program sounds empowering and exciting and really interesting. Adam, how does yours look? What does it look like at REMSA for training for community paramedics? Well, first off, I I took a note there. I think, Anne, you hit it on the head with that patrol and detective analogy. I will continue to use that. So thank you for that. You know, interestingly, I had the opportunity to be here when we first started. And uh, at the time, we had a different medical director. And day one, you know, I had gone to, I think it was Cherry Creek Colorado, where we had this uh, community health summit that talked about the different type of curricula that was going to be used. And it was like an 18-month program that involved internal medicine rotation and psychiatry. And for many organizations, you know, that seemed like a heavy lift to recreate. You know, it, it peppered things that are sexy, right? Like suturing and doing, you know, giving out medications and such. And and so we we were able to obviously get together and see what our community needed. And I remember day one, Dr. Joseph Ryan and Diane Rolfs, who were the primary instructors, came in and, and they were playing the part of academists because this really was the transition to more academic pre-hospital emergency care. They came in, apparently academics wear scarves, and so they came in with Doran with scarves. <laughs> And they kind of called themselves the green team, uh, kind of paying tribute to our friends across the pond in the NHS um, because they knew that they were kind of pioneering that. And so over the the last you know decade, uh, we have changed the way in which we provide education purposefully. You know, one of the discussions we constantly have is, should we just go ahead and put this part of our paramedic program? We have an accredited paramedic program. 
We're able to uh, provide education with a partnership with the University of Nevada. And was it the right time to allow everybody to have the certification? And we purposefully have decided that that is not the case, that we want these paramedics to have. It's a different, you know, a community paramedic or uh, somebody that's uh, engaged in mobile integrated health is a different type of paramedic. Typically, they have experience. They have the adrenaline-seeking behavior that when we first come in, where, you know, if, if you don't have a hole, we'll make one. If there is a hole, we'll plug it, has quelled. And so I kind of say that they're a little bit more, at least pre-hospitally matured. Um, and so our curriculum focuses on motivational interviewing, obviously social determinants of care. We've included a project where we look at some of our community needs assessments and we base plans based on that. And so it's, again, it's not that stuff that drives us into emergency medicine, but it's a stuff in which definitely makes an impact and a difference in managing populations of health. And so, you know, it's going to continue to evolve. You know, like I said, initially we had things um, that we don't teach anymore. We taught suturing, we taught Foley catheters, we taught a lot of different things. And now we're looking more towards even doing field trips into kind of the wild where we're doing street-like medicine, meeting individuals using some of those interview techniques to be able to draft a plan. And like Ann said, it's not more with you for five minutes, but what? how are we going to make a difference in your life over the next 30, 60 days? I've just been blown away by everything you guys have just said. And if you ask me to summarize, I would say that, Anne, you've hit the nail on the head by saying that 911 is for just eight minutes, 59 seconds. Community paramedicine is for life. And also, uh, you know, Adam, you're right. You've got the cooler karma cats doing the uh, the pre-hospital stuff and uh, very thoughtful cooler karma cats at that. And uh, I just want to go back and, and tell a quick origin story uh, of my own that back in the UK, when I was the operations director for East Anglia Ambulance Service, we started off, our program started off being called ACAPON. Okay. And it was uh, appropriate care at the point of need. That's what ACAPON stood for. And it was the collation of a paramedic a social worker, occasionally the council handyman guy that would come along and fit rails, Perfect. remove the carpet where you Perfect. used to trip over. And that really cunning thing is back in the day, and some of you may remember this, we had this thing called the VCR, right? The, the video cassette recorder, where, where was the VCR? It was always under the television. And so when Gran, Nan, Nanny, Nana would go down and change the tape, of course, you'd never get up again. And so what the handyman would do, are you ready for this? Would take the VCR and put it from under the television to on top of the set. And Gran, Nanny, Nan, Nana never fell over again. And so we started all of that off. And then uh, somebody said, well, actually, we want one of those people in our community. I know. We'll call him a community paramedic. And Paul Elverden was the very first community paramedic in the east of England back then, name dropping. But another another one, and, and our good friend Brian Hupp, if you're listening, will, will, is the master of this story. But we had a frequent caller that would call every night after Jeopardy. And so we'd send an ambulance over and we'd realize that that person just needed some company. And so Brian Hupp, top man, as soon as Jeopardy finished, Brian Hupp would call her. <laughs> and we never sent an ambulance around again. And he got really good at Jeopardy. Okay. In other words, in, in other words you've got to think outside the box as well. Um, and, and having that kind of far-reaching ability to think wider than the subject is, of course, is, an, is, a, is a clearly another thing to do 
Sorry, Hillary, you got no, your hand up on the screen. You that like you just nailed community paramedicine, which is that it's preventive instead of reactive, right? So Brian figured out yep. in Richmond that if he called this woman, that um, he'd talk her off the ledge. And we have some amazing thinkers in this industry. I just heard Jonah Thompson from Allegheny Healthcare in uh, Pittsburgh talk about the peaks and the troughs and that we, our patients and our humans, they do these peaks and troughs and we tend to see them in 911 at the peaks, perhaps of, of illness or whatever, or maybe at the troughs, I should have said it that way. But that if we can get them at what he called the J point for all of us nerdy medics who like 12 leads, if we can get them at that J point and for your patient, it's uh, Jeopardy at 731 or whatever time it's over, then we can prevent that next emergency or what the patient thinks is an emergency. So I just think that those epiphanies that people have um, and that Brian figured out are ways that we can sell this program and sell the value of it and get the audience, the chiefs, the medical directors, the payers, the hospitals, the city council, the municipal systems to understand that when you're standing in the room or the house of a, of a frequent caller for the 17th time in two months, and your only option is to take them to the hospital, and perhaps even your pressure to take them to the hospital so that you can bill them and get paid, you're doing the wrong thing. And when you do the right thing, it just feels correct, right? It's, it's, it's this epiphany. It's this um, sense that what you've been doing wrong for a long time, and, and I know many EMS providers get burned out by this, can be rectified by such a well-planned system of care with highly trained professional folks like Anne and Adam produce. And I just think that's great. Anne, Adam, thoughts on that? I agree, and I appreciate that. And I think there are a ton of communities across the United States and and beyond that are working to try and do this. I think the time is ripe. You know, I think for a period of time, there may be the potential for there to see uh, this as adversarial to some groups. Um, I know, you know, for us, there was a potential for encroachment into the nursing profession, specifically home health. And so I think what, like I said, kind of there's this silver lining to the pandemic. People on the front lines, these healthcare heroes all over the place, whether you're in a hospital, you're in an ambulance, you're doing whatever you're doing to provide uh, compassionate, clinically excellent care, we're tired. Resources are stretched. People are leaving the profession. In addition, I think we proved to ourselves that we can do things different. You know, specifically for our state, there was a a declaration of emergency that allowed for us to think outside the box. It it forced us to think outside the box and provided some a little bit of comfort and indemnification that allowed for us to use that as a growing kind of a little Petri dish. And I think we're going to take that and we're going to use the data and we're going to use the financial infrastructure to potentially prove and progress a lot of these initiatives. And we're going to see it grow in narcotics and opioid abuse in our communities. We're going to see it grow in the way that we manage and treat behavioral health patients in our community. And so I think uh, really, if anything, this is a, a rebirth or kind of reborn, something that's difficult. Community health and community paramedicine and mobile integrated health is not lucrative. Many places write it and they don't have the funding sources to sustain it. If somebody has that secret, let us know. Give us a call. Give uh, Rob a call right now. Uh, But in the interim, I think, uh, Hillary, early on, you kind of talked about different strategies to look outside of, I do this and you pay me, looking more at healthcare partnerships or partnerships with payers or municipalities. And then the downstream ROI is, 
ensuring that emergency assets are available for emergencies. In addition, patients are taken care of in the right place at the right time at the right cost, which is going to pay dividends in the end. Great, Adam. And and I know we always ask uh, this question to you veterans, and that is, if I want to start a program or if I want to be the champion in my agency to start knocking on my chief's door or talk to a payer or something like that, what are some pieces of advice for those who are looking to start an MIHCP program? That's a good question. And uh, I would say, and I guess I'll backtrack a little bit to answer that, tagging on to what Adam mentioned about encroaching on other people's territory. I would say having a solid need, a a well-documented need for that, I think in our favor was the fact that unfortunately nobody cared about the frequent utilizers and, you know, mental health and and substance use disorders. They're they're issues that a a lot of people, they don't want to deal with. And so I think we really went undercover a lot. Nobody really got in our way or resisted us. So, you know, I would say that your, your community needs assessment is important in identifying what the needs are. You probably already know what they are, the things that are plaguing you and keeping you up at night. But I would say my advice to people starting up is I believe in starting small and, and very organic. I just think when you scale up too big, there's just a lot of riffraff. And I believe that you take very small, meaningful steps and those small steps add up to a very big picture later on. But if you're looking for partners, say you want to share data, it's like, let's just share this one data point because it's so meaningful. We don't have to share anything else but this one data point. And then you earn trust and then you you build partnerships that way. So I think starting small, although now REMSA was very well funded and they started like out with a bang. So there's, there's definitely that perspective. Yeah. And you're so right to talk about what the community needs. And just because a program, an MIHCP program is working in one community doesn't mean that that's the program you should replicate. So you have to do an assessment of the community, which is probably already done by your public health system and it lives on the internet and you can just go find that document and read through it. I just had a guest speaker in my class at Pittsburgh talk about how they realize that their community is actually quite young and they have more young people than they do old people, which is a um, novel thing in this United States these days. And they decided that their program was going to be called Safe Landings. And it was about helping new parents with safety because trauma is the leading killer of children. And so car seat installation and CPR and things like that. So Knowing your community is so important, and Anne can attest to that with all of the urban nature of her program, with uh, housing, getting housing for some of the homeless population, and Adam can, I'm sure, attest to what's going on in Reno that way, too. So, yeah, thank you for that. If I could add one more thing that I think is really important that we aren't good at as paramedics is your, your ability to network through the community is really important. And it is not my strong point. I look, I like abstract, complicated things. And I like to be like, I'm an introvert. And I'm not too proud to admit I went on Amazon and I bought a book on how to make small talk, because I I felt like it was so important in building relationships to build my program. Um, So I, I think we can't dismiss the importance of being able to to befriend people and to, you know, socialize and reach out of our box and out of our culture. Love that story. And I think today you've done the most appropriate big talk in order to open up your world to our listeners. And we thank you for that. And uh, I also agree, you know, start small. PDSA, this is my Tegman moment, okay? Plan, do, study, act. Small tests of change, you know, pick one thing. Who are our most, and you've mentioned it already, who are our most 
frequent service users. How can we help them? What can we do about that? And so I'm all about the data. You all know that already, but that's a really good use. And obviously, Adam, you have described and defined the value proposition for bringing us MIHCP. And so thank you both for that. For those that have been listening, if they want to get hold of you guys and ask a question, how can we get hold of you, Anne? My email is good, ajensen at sandiego.gov. That's A-J-E-N-S-E-N at sandiego.gov. Excellent. Adam? Ahines at remsahealth.com, or uh, you can Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, uh, coming soon, TikTok at remsa underscore Adam. I can't wait oh, for the yeah. Adam TikToks. If you're a Twitter follower of Adam, what's your Twitter handle? Because you do a good line in socks for the hashtag sock game too. Definitely sock game. Thank you for starting that. So it's remsa, R-E-M-S-A underscore Adam, A-D-A-M. Excellent. Guys, thank you very much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. You guys listening out there know how to get hold of our wonderful guests. We look forward to uh, coming back in the next 12 months in 2022 to bring you more EMS Educator podcasts. But for now, Hillary, over to you for a close. I just want everyone to know that expanding your knowledge and understanding these new systems and these systems that we know have been proven to work and do the best thing for our patients and actually for ourselves is a pretty exciting way to live. So if you're a paramedic or an EMT or or in this system and you're wanting to learn something new, this might be your new jam. And I encourage you to read all about it and talk to Anne and Adam and those other thought leaders that we have in our space. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been another episode of the EMS Educator.